Ships on the web at flamingfish.net. Little ships for big kids. Support for Boat Talk also comes from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. The LePage administration is damaged, dismantled, curtailed, uh, weakened. And the Defense Department is currently developing a drone that might be the size of a mosquito. But they're not really trade agreements. They're deregulation and corporate protectionism. And he told me we should go to Bald Mountain before they disappear. Mainers for fair bear hunting. Universal health care. South East West Corridor. It is back to the best markets. They're often local markets. Our working waterfront and marine industries. The union makes us strong. Fracking. A so-called improvement dredge. Fossil field investment. The Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, the TPP. Mining in or under the waters of the state. To the WERU News Report with host Amy Brown every Tuesday and Wednesday afternoon at 4.30 here on Community Radio WERU. Independent local news. Support for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox. On the web at mainboats.com. It is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming worldwide at weru.org. Stay tuned for Boat Talk. Good morning, and yeah, welcome to Boat Talk. Never heard them saying eyes the bye yet this morning, but, you know, we're, uh, there, there we go in the background. Anyway, uh, and we are otherwise uh, discombobulated for the April edition of Boat Talk. Got a call from Alan Sprague yesterday from St. Thomas, Virgin Islands, and they canceled his plane yesterday, so he's not going to be making it to Boat Talk this morning, but I've welcomed... Our friend Michael War from Stonington, a uh, sometime usual suspect, and and uh, we've not only interviewed you, you've been a co-host uh, at least a time couple before, of times. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for inviting me again. I, of course, I'm mainly feeling sorry for Alan. Can't get back and Another enjoy our paradise. lovely weather. You, yeah, you yeah. know, somehow we hope he'd be all right. He'd be traveling today, though. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd uh, hear from him, but I don't think we will. And isn't it just a beautiful thing? Not only. That we have a community radio station where any fool can come in and, and uh, talk about boats for an hour. Now, I wasn't referring to you, but I called you. Yeah, He's looking at me. I though. called you yesterday evening, and I says, Michael, would you like to come over and sit in on Boat Talk and, and uh, be the co-host tomorrow? He says, great. And I says, you didn't even wonder for a second what we might be talking about or, uh, you know, I'm hardly prepared. And But, no, we can do this on the community radio and, and – uh, it is a cool thing to uh, have people who are knowledgeable in one field or another. We got boats. boats, dogs, babies, whatever, <laughs> you know, who can come in and, and uh, as they hang out on the radio for an hour, I doubt we'll have uh, trouble filling the time. We hardly ever do, but we do miss Alan. 
Now, Alan always starts the program, always, okay? I never, I just sit back at the beginning of every Boat Talk program. I got nothing to do until he makes a pun, okay? So I haven't got the puns. I, I tossed and turned all last night. And uh, after I fell asleep, I started having this weird dream about a submarine. And, and all through it, I'm, I'm searching for a pun, and there might be one hanging there. But the harder you, I can't. I know. I just, I, my brain is not organized that way. Friend Sonny might have offered up something about glass eels and pains this morning, but I can't make much of it. So uh, we're going to have to, to uh, do without a pun this morning. But it did get me thinking of the value of a good partner. And I'd like to brag up Alan Sprague for a minute. We've been doing boat talk here for, uh, I think, a dozen-plus years now, uh, maybe going on 15. And uh, we didn't start hosting it. Um, Kathy, uh, Kathy Melio and uh, Paul Brayton had the idea that we ought to have a boat show, and they approached Joel White and Maynard Bray a long, long time ago. And uh, they did the first few editions of Boat Talk. Joel and Maynard were happy to do it, but they weren't weren't really radio kind of people, and it just uh, you know sat there for a while. And they asked Alan and I to do it one time. It turned out well, and we're still doing it. So, well, a good partner is a, a fine and and rare thing. A, a, an old friend once once warned me actually that a partnership is like no ship at all, and I. It's not always true, and in your case, not. But I, there's, that's it's something to heed. There, partners, good partners, are hard to find. There's uh, different ways things like that can be rung. Alan and I don't over fuss it at all. We don't over discuss anything. Uh, he's got things that he does that he's interested in, and and uh, fortunately, it's some stuff like the computer that I'm not. So you know, it all kind of works out, and. Uh, no, Alan's a very good fellow to be partnered up with, very thoughtful and, and uh, very thorough, and he's got the back end. So, But he's not here this morning. There'll be no pun, and we're missing him pretty hard. Well, were you thinking about the submarine driving in here this morning? I mean, we're damn close to submarining, driving in here between the roads and the rain. I tell you, I, I tossed and turned so much uh, last night uh, trying to think of, of a pun, and then I don't know where the submarine come in, but somehow we were delivering a submarine, okay? <laughs> and we're running on the surface with the hatches open. That's all I can tell you about that dream. So, But we are here doing boat talk this morning, and again, um, Without Alan, we'll think of something, and we're going to talk to a fellow named Jeff Nichols from the state uh, office of the DMR. He's a communications fellow down there. We're going to talk a little bit about Elvers this morning, and we'll get to that in a couple minutes anyway. There are a couple of uh, uh, things in the news here, and en route right now from Singapore is a brand-new 528-foot ship called the Nova Star. We're going to have a new uh, Nova Scotia to Portland ferry coming back. They're trying to start the thing up by May 1st, but they don't even have the boat here yet. And uh, they're still working on the terminal lease in Portland, and uh, there's a couple of details to be uh, uh, nailed down. I think they've sold their first tickets, though. Have they? I, 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 I believe like so. That. Here's a question for you. Um, what do these vessels all have in common? The Prince of Fundy, the Bolero, Carib, Marine Evangeline, the Scotia Prince, and the Cat. I had no idea. They were all Portland Yarmouth ferries. Right. 
and they all operate on one fundamental uh, operating rule. There must be a Nova Scotia government subsidy. But the cat actually was Bar Harbor, too. Uh, yes, but there was a uh, Nova Scotia uh, government subsidy that then For stopped. That yeah. Okay, and then the cat went out of business. All those ferries only operate with a Nova Scotia government subsidy, and when there is no Nova Scotia government subsidy, there's no ferry. There's a new Nova Scotia government subsidy, $21 million over seven years. That's a fine thing. Yep. I think there's a place for government, and that's a, and that's not a bad one. I, All those Canadians are a little bit more socialist than we are. I didn't call them communists or nothing, but they're a little more socialist than we are. I tried to be a Canadian. They wouldn't have me, so I'm um, well, nothing but jealous. And, and think I'm of a socialist the, capitalist myself. Hey, think of the uh, um, transportation issues they have on the end of the peninsula of Nova Scotia there. Oh, it's, you know, it's yeah. quite something just to get from uh, Deer Isle to Boston, okay, let alone from Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. Uh, without that sea link, they are... Oh, it's a hideous drive. Oh, hideous, terrible. Hideous drive. Yeah. And uh, that's a long road just to get to the Trans-Canada. Uh, and, and there's nothing much on that outside of Moncton and St. John's. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's pretty yeah, much it's a, a wasteland. It's a vital link. There. It's a vital link. And um, it is kind of sad that it doesn't work without the uh, uh, Nova Scotia government subsidy. But the new ship that's coming is 528 feet. It uh, was built for the English Channel. has 163 cabins, take 1,000-odd people, and it's going to leave Portland every night and uh, be nine hours to Yarmouth, uh, be there in the morning. Well, they ought to be able to take whatever the weather hands out then. Won't it be interesting? So I'm uh, just sorry they didn't bring the ship back to Bar Harbor. I, I traveled the old Blue Nose years ago many times. And, you know, it's a long hike down to Portland to, to take a longer boat ride to Yarmouth. And... Uh, Hard to say how the uh, mix of passengers, uh, tourists versus commercial, uh, uh, would differ between the Bar Harbor and Portland destinations. They're cu- they're getting out of Yarmouth. They're going wherever they're going to land in Maine. They're going to be happy no matter what. So. Well, they used to run both, though, didn't they? Yeah. 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 We used to uh, uh, be around the cat sometimes when it would come and spin in its uh, uh, axis and then dock and uh, Bar Harbor there. and. You get the view of uh, the death view, we called it, because the cat ran over a lobster boat one time. And right. Somebody was killed, you know, I remember. right in between the hulls there. And we used to call that the death view, sit in between the thing and watch it. So uh, I think that was quite killed, a vessel. What killed it, though, was that uh, they didn't carry cars. I think that's a, that's a huge that's a huge problem, right? I, yeah. I mean, when you look at the coast of Nova Scotia, from Yarmouth up to Halifax, it's a beautiful coastline, the East Coast. Lots of beautiful little towns, Liverpool, Bristol, Shelburne, Lunenburg, um, all of Mahone Bay, and then up to Halifax. Uh, great places, beautiful scenery, and people like to drive, get your car off in Yarmouth, and, and it's a three-and-a-quarter-hour drive to Halifax, it's uh, that encompasses lots and lots to see. I think the cat kind of shot itself in the foot by not carrying cars. Yeah, I wouldn't say that there's nothing down there, but um, I used to. I like to joke. Uh, people ask me what Nova Scotia's like. I say it's like down East Maine, except for less so, you know, and not a lot of industry. Their fishing uh, no. industry is still pretty he- pretty healthy down there, and they they work hard at it. But uh, they have to get that off the peninsula to market somehow. And, and a lot of that used to come over on the ferry, too. So be interesting to see how that develops. Another little interesting story here I uh, caught my eye was the apprentice shop, the uh, Rockland apprentice shop, the uh, what else they call that, the Atlantic Challenge. 
place down in Rockland there, right on Route 1, right squeezed between the uh, shore and the uh, road there, is up for sale. And they uh, have uh, two and a half acres of waterfront property there that's a little bit too much land for them. Mm. And uh, the value of it can't be ignored. So they are hoping to find somebody to do a bit of a creative deal. The best thing that they could hope at the um, uh, premise shop would be that somebody would come in and lease the property and let them stay on a little piece of it, which would suit the apprentice shop quite well. Uh, maybe they'll take the money and end up someplace else, or maybe they'll give you a deal on the property if you can think of uh, put a marina there, for instance, or, or uh, you know, some other going concern that they could cohabit in. So the apprentice shop is kind of downsizing uh, property-wise. They're still staying in still business. Still staying in business, yeah. But yeah. they've got, uh, again... Uh, I mean, they've been around a long time. Yeah. And this property here is worth uh, oh, about a million and a half dollars. And not being overly endowed with a million and a half dollars. Other, otherwise, uh, you know, they have to look at that, I guess. They've had it since 1999, it says. And whatever you do, you've got to be able to make enough money to pay some pretty impressive property taxes, is my guess. Oh, boy. Um, they have a, a two and a half acres and uh, 822 feet of waterfront. Ouch. Yeah. So <laughs> I believe a foot is... A, prime waterfront. Yeah, prime yeah. waterfront right next to Route 1, too. So, so anyway, if you're uh, thinking of, uh, you know, where you could put a million-odd bucks and now you could help the apprentice shop, Get a hold of them. Uh, I'm, I'm rolling down on my 65th <laughs> birthday, thinking more retiring. <laughs> I'll tell you, a million and a half dollars would, would just barely start to set me right. Yeah. So I could help them after. Um, another interesting uh, uh, local landmark here is the old Hamilton Sane Loth, Loft on uh, Route 1 in Searsport there. It used to be Hamilton Marine's store back in the day. Right. And then it sat for years. Uh, sometimes there'd be nets in the window. They used it to build the annual uh, parade float in, but it's basically sat there for years. Well, uh, Wayne Hamilton has donated it to the Penobscot Bay Marine Museum, and now it's going to be known as the Hamilton Learning Center. And it's going to be a, uh, like say, resource uh, building for um, learning among other things on on the picture of the uh, from the Bangor Daily News here is our friend Greg Russell uh, WERU wooden boat school and uh, you know uh, yep. uh, boat builder in Troy Maine yep. yep teaching a, he's four years into uh, teaching sophomores how to build shellback dinghies at Searsport High and now they have a permanent place to do it besides the the wood shop which uh, it's cluttered up with them shellback dinghies, you know. Well, that's a fine thing. And the Penobscot Marine Museum is a great institution, I have to say. In the 20 years I've been here, visited it quite a few times, taken people there. And they make a real effort for a small yeah. place to put on a great show. They get some great exhibits. And, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent thing. Wayne Hamilton started selling uh, uh, marine supplies out of his garage back in the early 80s, and he couldn't. once he started selling stuff, he couldn't help himself, and he started selling so much stuff. It says uh, business tripled like every month in the, in the early years there, and, uh, you know, he was desperate for space, and, and he hit a little gold mine there, and, but Wayne is really excited about kids uh, being in that building and learning about boats and stuff, so uh, thank you, Wayne, and I've never met the man personally, but I have to say I've admired him from a distance. He's done a 
his business model is impeccable. Yep. And I do business with him. I buy stuff from him, and um, well, they're, they're just outstanding. They can't do enough for you, and uh, they go the extra mile to make sure you get uh, what you need. That's a great success story when you get right down to it. It and, is. And, they're and, a great and, asset to the coast yeah, of Maine. And Wayne's uh, uh, helping uh, asset the community right there, the Hamilton Learning Center. So honk when you go by or stop and look in. <laughs> now, we are doing boat talk this morning. we got Michael War sitting in. Alan's uh, in between here and St. Thomas, uh, Virgin Islands somehow. And we'd like to uh, otherwise uh, talk a little bit about Elbers this morning, and we hope to have Jeff Nichols on the phone. Morning, Jeff. Are you there? Good morning. I'm here. Jeff, you work for the uh, Department of Marine Resources down in Augusta. You're the communications fella. That's correct. Yeah. And uh, the Elber season just started up uh, this weekend. Uh, I haven't seen too much activity yet, but it was a little late going, uh, getting going this year. Would you like to start by explaining that? Sure. Um, yeah, it was uh, had traditionally started on on March 22nd, but uh, because of um, the need for rulemaking to implement um, the uh, the new individual fishing quota uh, that is in place for this this season, and also to um, distribute the new swipe cards, we needed a, a couple extra weeks of, of uh, time to get that done, and so we uh, we started this past Sunday at noon and. As you say, it's it's been pretty slow. What I'm hearing is is that uh, r- really things haven't started to pick up yet. No matter uh, who had arranged what, uh, you know, uh, uh, governmentally, the weather just what hasn't been right. Yeah, exactly. This has uh, been a pretty cold spring, and and so the late start hasn't, you know, really impacted landings. And um, but I spoke this morning to. Uh, Renee Cloutier, Lieutenant Cloutier, who is uh, the lieutenant of our um, Division One, and he was telling me that uh, looking at the calendar and looking at the uh, the tides, probably next Monday is looking like a, you know a, a good a good day for or a good night for for fishing because the the tides will be right in the evening, and by then perhaps the the water will have warmed up. The uh, eel fishery doesn't really have any boats in it, but we're claiming it because it's marine here. But and let's uh, I want to kind of start at the beginning. And uh, it's just such a great um, story, these, these, the life cycle of these eels. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a kid, we would uh, bobber fish in a pond and leave a worm on the bottom of the lake too long and mm-hmm. end up with an eel on our hook. And that was icky. When we were kids, okay, mm-hmm. and, and we wouldn't get that hook back. We cut that off, and, and we didn't eat those eels. We threw them away, <laughs> and uh, we didn't know they were delicacies. But these eels inhabit main lakes and ponds, and some of them uh, quite a bit up country. And uh, apparently they grow for 8 to 25 years in our lakes and ponds. Mm-hmm. And then they decide that they need to go have babies, and they want to do that in the Sargasso Sea. It's the far side of Bermuda. It's about a 1,000 miles from here. Mm. And so these eels get up out of the mud in the bottom of whatever pond and go down, 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 always always uh, downstream back to the salt water. And, again, they've been living in uh, – some of them have been living in brackish water, um, um, think of an animal that can process um, salt 
through its skin or not. Um, you know, an, an animal that can live in salt water is uh, adapted different from an animal that can live in, in fresh water, and some do both. That's kind of an interesting specialty, too. So they go back to the salt water. They swim a 1,000 miles to the Sargasso Sea, this legendary place, the other side of Bermuda, and they mate indiscriminately and uh, make babies. And then these babies, uh, little tiny, uh, tiny, tiny little bits of uh, uh, fluff drift back on the, um, on the current and come like a 1,000 miles back and, and then decide uh, uh, once they find a good piece of water to swim upstream and again, uh, that eel may uh, be a baby and uh, be eaten by somebody in tidal water. It may uh, uh, stay in the tidal area, or it may climb all the way up and go to Greenville or someplace and, and live in a pond up there. And it's just remarkable the way that those animals get around. Yeah, it's it really is a, a kind of a a mind blowing journey that they go on, and uh, you know it, it's just remarkable to to. Uh, think about <laughs> about those little uh, little glass eels the you know the trip they have to make to get to get to our shores so yeah it's amazing some people wondered if they're like uh, salmon and they home on on their home water but uh, I see here there's a study by the University of uh, Laval Quebec which uh, tested a lot of eel DNA and decided that, no, it's a pretty random process. Right, right. And there's uh, a lot of them, and they inhabit the entire East Coast. Now, there are only eel fisheries in what, South Carolina and Maine? South Carolina and Maine, that's right. Yep, just two states. Um, tricky enough to get it going in Maine. Now, how about the history, Jeff, of the eel fishery? There was one uh, years ago, what, back in the 70s? Uh, yeah, there there, uh, there was one in the 70s um, through 78, um, and apparently uh, there, it was it collapsed um, because the market for market demand for elbers um, apparently um, was was non-existent, and um, but then uh, the the market demand has has turned around, and um, as we know, in the past couple years. Um, the demand has just gone through the roof. We've had two years back to back of uh, of um, value that is is really pretty amazing, almost as amazing as the uh, you know the life story of the elver itself. So, um, a couple of thousand dollars for a pound yeah. of of little glass eels that are kind of little transparent little wigglers, and, right. and uh, a pound is more or less a gallon jug, wouldn't you say? Um, yeah, I think that's probably a, a pretty close guess. Just a, a little bit of a, you know, a visual there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, again, the prices run up as high as it says here, uh, $2,600 a pound. Yeah, that was, uh, I guess, last year or the year before we were, we were um, pushing. We were, you know, over $2,000 a pound at times during the season, but averaged um, over 1800 a pound uh, both seasons. So that's, uh, you know, that's a pretty good pretty good day's pay if you can harvest a few pounds. Now, to add to the story of the travel of these animals, it's not done at all, and nobody wants to eat those little uh, glass eels either. Mm. Um, they're going to, what, Taiwan, some someplace in the Far East now. Yeah, they, they're shipped to uh, overseas to Asian, um, Asian uh, growers who uh, cultivate.
cultivate them and rear them to adult size for uh, for um, for consumption. And in fact, uh, you know, if you if you eat sushi in uh, you know in a local uh, restaurant, you may you, know, you order something with with eel in it, you may be eating a, an eel that started you know started out here. <laughs> The little wriggler come up the Union River, end up at the Shimbasi, uh, uh, you know, uh, sushi restaurant up the hill there right. on, on High Street. Yeah, no yeah exactly. Why not? So, yeah. Jeff, I got a question for you. Uh, uh, is it safe to assume that that there are ongoing studies to, um, you know, to track the the catch versus the uh, the well being of this species in the long run? Um, you know, there's obviously a gold rush mentality here, which we've seen with different fisheries over the years. And um, uh, I, I, I would hope anyway that, that uh, the people that, that are in charge of the fishery are making sure that this is a sustainable long-term um, business. Yeah, that absolutely is, is uh, you know, a big, a big part of um, – all these management measures that we've put into place this season is to to you know try to ensure the sustainability of this resource for the long term and you know you may know that uh, the state of Maine um, was facing a, a, a even more significant reduction in our overall quota than than what ultimately uh, we settled on which is a 35% reduction um, from last year's landings, and that um, that agreement was one that uh, Commissioner Kelleher crafted with the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission's American Eel Board. Uh, the American Eel Board sets the the regulatory framework for for member states, and they were looking at a number of options uh, because the American Eel is. Um, is considered depleted and is, um, you know, there's a pending uh, endangered species listing for the American eel. So they were looking at a number of options um, from a complete shutdown to um, uh, more uh, stringent reductions in, in the landings than ultimately what Commissioner Kelleher um, was able to, uh, to um, craft. And so... Uh, the, you know the the American Eel Board at ASMFC is is looking at this, but they're also going back to the to the drawing board a little bit. And and part of the the problem with their their approach this year was that they weren't taking into account the landings data from the last two years, the two most recent years. Um, so Commissioner Kelleher has you know. Um, worked with the, the eel board and gotten them to go back and uh, take a look at those that landings data, that most recent data, and then uh, after this season, uh, they'll be looking again at, at uh, a plan moving forward. So um, we're we're just in a in a one year kind of situation here. Next year, uh, who knows what's going to happen? But it's, it'll depend on um, the eel board taking a look at that more recent data and deciding do you know do we want to um, you know hold Maine to um, the same you know the same percentage reduction or do they you know want to increase that or, or do something else but everything is based on trying to create sustainability for the for the resource so the resource is, is really based over a pretty wide geographical area here um, mm. there's a um, 
a letter to the editor in the Bangor Daily News from James Cleave. He's a professor of marine soci- sciences at the University of Maine. He points out that panmictic species pose particular problems for conservation because their welfare can be only effectively addressed on a global scale, you know, things that get around like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, why don't other states have eel fisheries besides us in South Carolina? That's a question for the ASMFC. I, you know, I defer to, to them on, on that. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the, the whole history is there. I think, um, you know, as you, as you know from our experience here in Maine, there's, a, there's not an insignificant, um, uh, you know, responsibility for a state in terms of uh, crafting legislation and enforcement measures that, that do ensure the sustainability of, of a resource um, for which you have um, a, a, a commercial fishery. So that, you know, that may be part of the equation that some of the other states are, are reluctant to, to get into it um, because of the, the challenges that, uh, that come with having a commercial fishery. It brought, um, I believe, what, $33 million to the state of Maine last year. That's not a bad little industry. No, it's a, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's the second most lucrative fishery uh, in the state, or at least it was, um, you know, uh, the past the past couple of years. So, um, it, yeah, it, uh, it's important to our, our coastal economy, but at the same time, we have to, you know, work hard to manage this resource to ensure its sustainability. So it's a balancing act. And cash, Jeff, cash. It's it's a cash on uh, the barrel fishery too. Um, well, that's that's changed this year. Um, payment has to be made by um, check or or uh, um, certified um, cashier's check. Um, so that you know, there's the cash issue isn't um, that was an issue. Uh, you know, there was a lot of cash floating around, and so that you know that too becomes a you know uh, an, an enforcement challenge. You, you have people um, out there with large wads of cash. Um, there's, you know, potential for for problems with that. So. All kinds of problems, I imagine, in law enforcement included. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. There's a fella in the uh, front page of the Ellsworth American uh, this week. Elver Fisherman made $700,000 and didn't mention any of it to the tax authorities, apparently. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. He's being charged with uh, tax abuse, uh, oh, Theft by deception, a bunch of other stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The uh, idea, though, that this fellow made uh, uh, almost three quarters of a million dollars uh, off of Elvers is kind of remarkable. Um, it points out that he would have had catch 300 pounds of Elvers at prime mm-hmm. price, and uh, there's very few people that even catch 100 pounds. So right. He's obviously the best fisherman in the world, as well as a, a uh, worst accountant, a bad accountant. <laughs> and uh, it does suggest—I hate to say it—Jeff uh, make allegations right out here on the radio, though that uh, there's other other layers of uh, money involved here, and possibly other other eels, uh, you know, need a place to go. Uh, can be eels can be caught a lot of places, but they can only be sold. Uh, by certain people in certain places. Again, right. you're trying to uh, camp. You, you guys are trying to uh, deal with that mm-hmm. with your new plastic cards. Yeah, the new plastic cards and the individual fishing quotas um, create a, a you know a bit of a disincentive for um, you know for for poaching because if you have you know if you have um, a you know a quota. 
maybe it's a disincentive to to buy Elbers and pay somebody else um, and, and basically, in effect, share some of your quota with someone else. So that's, you know, that's part of the, the um, you know, the impetus for, for the individual fishing quotas. But, uh, you know, uh, I'm, we can't um, suggest that that kind of activity isn't going to happen, but, I, you know, the Marine Patrol certainly has a, has a close eye on things. Yeah, and uh, now as we're driving by tidal streams, we'll see uh, in the next few weeks uh, the banks lined with nets, uh-huh. and these are called fike nets. Uh-huh. Um, the other way that uh, the fishing is done is uh, with dip nets, just like mm-hmm. the little aquarium nets right. that are uh, a little more rugged. Mm-hmm. And these fike nets, there's uh, quite, a, quite a bit of rules about uh, where they can and, and cannot go. Uh, mm-hmm. We're trying to give the eels, some of the eels, a fighting chance to get up the river. Isn't mm-hmm. that true? Yeah, um, middle third of the river, you can't, uh, you know, you can't do anything in the middle third of the river, 50 feet um, from a river herring trap, 150 feet from a fishway. So there are rules that, um, you know, we're trying to, trying to, like you say, ensure that, uh, you know, not every single elver is harvested, that some of them can get up river and, and do their thing. And, and uh, so that's, um, you know, that's... Uh, uh, one of the you know some of the conservation measures that are in place. I was surprised uh, to uh, think of bycatch too. Elvers are not the only. Of course, that's what you're after, but it's not the only thing that might get into that net. Right. And right. again, it suggests here that uh, smelts, alewives, mm-hmm. trout, and salmon, among other things, may end up in those nets as well. So, right. Right. Yeah. That's why you have to open up the end of it. You know, uh, during the days that. That it's closed, so you know that bycatch would be able to get out. So, some people think being a hunter gatherer is the simplest thing, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I, I don't think there's anything simple about it. You know, I, I think there's. Uh, you know, there's a, a level of. You know, you, especially with the fishery, like you know, the elver fishery. The you know, the, the fishermen they know, they know the tides. They know. You know, they know the temperature of the water. Um, they have a level of, of uh, connection to, you know, to nature that um, those of us who spend way too much time, you know, behind our desk, you know, don't don't have. And um, so there's a, a sophistication and a complexity that that um, you know, to to be in this fishery, you have to you have to accept. The uh, new system is indivi- individual quotas, and uh, they're based on past history, I guess, but. Um, here's what I know about fishermen. Some of them work harder than others, and the hardest working ones make the most money. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yep. um, you've got to put the work in. There's there's really no way around that. Those eels deliver themselves, and sometimes you will just get, uh, you know, a gold nugget uh, dropped on you sometime. But you've mm-hmm. got to put. Uh, there's a lot of labor to it. Yeah, there is no no doubt about that and that was you know part of the i would say part of the conversation that the commissioner had early on um <clears throat> excuse me with industry as he was deciding um whether or not to go to individual fishing quotas the other you know option was to have a statewide quota and have what's called a derby fishery um where individuals don't have a quota um that would have uh, quite likely um Denied a lot of license holders an opportunity to to um, to actually um, ha- catch any, 
because like you say some you know some folks fish harder than others and and could have likely harvested the entire state quota before uh, all the license holders had a chance to to uh, access the fishery so IFQs accomplish a number of things including that the uh, hunter-gatherer day is uh, again kind of passing a bit uh, you know there are less and less uh, things you can go up and go out and pick up and sell a, a really wise fella uh, fisherman told me years ago Jeff he says he says my job's not catching fish my job's selling them you know, and again, you could have caught eels in the 80s, but the market busted in the 70s. So, you know, um, it's all about uh, uh, demand. Uh, um, I also uh, know that fishermen, uh, even if they realize that the scientist is right, that's the last one, they're still going to want to catch it and sell it. You know, um, that's part of the part of the psychology of the thing, too, when you get right down to it. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's that's. Um, I would say that's that's a sort of a, a common theme in in the conversations that um, that we have with industry is, you know, about science and the importance of science and the sh- you know the shortcomings of of the best available science that we work with. But um, you know the the commitment of the commissioner and everybody that I work with here in this department is to ensure that you know we are able to we do our best to sustain these resources. Um, and science is the basis of, of uh, those efforts. So, um. Yeah, because where I was going with that basically is, is uh, you know, uh, harder to be a hunter-gatherer, diminishing resources, uh, more rules, and a lot of pressure for the financial resource there. And, and uh, boy, it gets people wound up sometimes. Um, there was, we talked about it on the phone the other day, uh, Great TV footage of uh, the the uh, commissioner. I'm sorry, I can't think of his name right now, but uh, Kelleher. Kelleher, uh, mm-hmm. you know, at a meeting with fishermen, and uh, you know, people are yelling on the TV yeah. news there, and mm-hmm. and uh, feelings are running hard because people's, uh, like, I say, there's a lot of money and and uh, at stake here, people's livings, people' way, way of life. Right. You know? Yeah, and and you know, Commissioner Kelleher is is obviously. Um, sensitive to that and and you know he fully appreciates how hard it is to um to make a living you know fishing um and you know he he tries to balance his commitment to to um the economy as well as the ecology and uh you know it's a tough job but he you know he he makes a a commitment to get out there and you know what you saw on television was I, i think a meeting up in up in Whiting to talk about um, uh, closures around the the scallop fishery and um, yeah you know tempers flared and and um, people do get um, angry when you know you you suggest that you're taking taking something away from them despite you know them you know working hard and following the rules and um, but the as far as the scallop fishery is concerned you know that the the um, numbers speak for itself um that you know that fishery the landings are going up and so that's a that is a a success story because of these these uh you know these difficult management measures that include closures and limited access so a lot of sacrifice on on the part of industry and that sacrifice can make people mad for sure but um with the landings going up and the value going up of that fishery uh, there's a lot of evidence that indicates that uh, 
uh, you know, the efforts of the commissioner and people like uh, Tricia DeGraff, who is the resource manager, um, they're working. So, Evidence is that uh, even if the times ain't changing, the water is, mm-hmm. you know, uh-huh. and that fact just got to be faced. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. And, again, uh, you know, we got to uh, – um, what was the uh, figure, I believe, last uh, year uh, in the Ellsworth American? They they said that the, uh, you know, the first uh, time the eels come up the river there, uh, I think it was a half a million dollars changed hands that, that tied in Ellsworth. Yeah. You know, we're talking $33 million. That's, uh, again, uh, mm. we'd, we'd love a $33 million industry to come to the general area now, wouldn't right, we? Right, right. I know. How many of those do we have in Maine? I mean, it's uh it's a remarkable thing, and I, you know, I think um, again, lost in the conversation sometimes is the effort of uh, Commissioner Kelleher to to um, work with ASMFC to put the brakes on, uh, you know, much more stringent reductions for this season. So he saved the state of Maine a lot of money um, by by, um, you know, working with the ASMFC and asking them to go back to the drawing board a little bit. Uh, how it shakes out next year, hard to say, but, um, you know, this season, 35% overall reduction is a whole heck of a lot better than what could, we could have been facing. Ah, interesting. Well, and the money may stay the same. You don't know. The, the demand, you, yeah. you know, a lot of times you can, you land too many fish and you know what happens. The right. price drops and, uh, right. you, you know, you deplete the resource, you make everybody work harder and you don't make any more money. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um yeah, I think it's a really tough job. I trying to balance all the input, the acrimony that that ensued last year between the the Native American fisher fishermen and uh, mm-hmm. and the others, and you've got the climate change issues, ocean acidification. I mm-hmm. I don't envy um, the commissioner his job. I think he's got a tough balancing act, juggling act to do. And again, a, a much bigger issue than Maine. We're just we're you know just part of the ecosphere that these things live in, and. And the part that's getting to cash in on them, apparently. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the, the commissioner and, and everybody that I have the privilege of, of working with here, from science to policy staff, they, you know, they have a, um, a big-picture awareness, um, you know, aware of, uh, an awareness of, of uh, you know, these, uh, these issues that you're talking about, warming waters and, and um, you know, they're really working hard to, to understand the impacts and, um, you know, do that balancing act that you, you're talking about to ensure opportunity for, for Mainers and uh, at the same time the sustainability of the resource and the health of the, of the ecosystem. So like you say, it's, a, it's, not, for, it's not a job for everybody, but uh, um, Pat Keller is, is, uh, seems to be well-suited to the position. Yeah, uh, something to think about, though, when you, again, uh, see the fishermen down on our tidal rivers, those little wigglers that have come a thousand-odd miles and, mm. and now maybe going to want to try to climb the way up towards Mount Katahdin to live in a muddy pond, you know, right. and do it all over again. It really is a heck of a story. So I uh, want to thank you for speaking with us this morning, Jeff Nichols from the Department of Marine Resources down you in Augusta. Bet. My pleasure. Yeah. yeah, it's been fascinating. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, take care. Yeah. And again, isn't nature wonderful? It is an amazing thing. You know, when you get right down to it, it's just kind of stunning. We mm-hmm. haven't uh, really uh, 
mentioned uh, radio-wise that we're doing boat talk here for a while <laughs> or that we're on the community radio, WERU. And it's a call-in show. And it's a call-in show, 866-625-9378 the uh, boat talk number here. We'll talk with anybody about anything, pretty much. And, uh, again, just trying to set the flavor for the local uh, scenery here. In the, and, uh, you know, you drive around and you see these people are very visible out uh, fishing on the side of the rivers there and, little heads up about what's going on. Uh, somebody asked me just recently what, what different fishermen earn and had a bit of an inflated uh, idea of what fishermen earn. Uh, you know, and, and it is a fairly hard gig, and, again, a bit of man. I think it varies hugely. Yeah. And effort is rewarded. Yeah. But they're not all out there making half a million dollars a year. In fact, none of them are. Mm. And very few of them are making 100000 plus, but, but a bunch of them make very good livings. And the phone is ringing off the hook. So, good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hi. Um, it's Elaine. Hi, Mike. Good morning, Elaine. How are you? Elaine, Fine, uh, another volunteer here. Monday's on the wing, among other uh, things. Oh, thanks for the plug. Yeah, how are um, you? I was just reading the New York Times uh, this morning, and there is a, a sailing story. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, about a couple who wanted to sail with their family, um, one-year-old and three-year-old girl from Mexico to New Zealand. And uh, the one-year-old became sick with a fever, uh, and it required a massive uh, rescue effort to, um, you know, to get this this child out and to medical help. And uh, I just thought I was wondering if you guys could weigh in on on that because they're they're facing a lot of criticism um, and about their parenting. They have been airlifted off the boat. I I heard. Yeah. The whole family. Yeah. I don't know what's happened to the Now, I'll, ha I'll have to break my cover here and uh, tell you that Glenn Beck is outraged, and I know that because I heard him on the drive over here this morning. So, um, Glenn Beck is always outraged. Yes, <laughs> as properly so, I guess. But anyway, um, so here, here's the scene, I guess. Are these people using a valuable public resource to uh, allow themselves to have a fantasy trip around the world and have their asses covered? I think that's a little cynical. I try. I didn't try, <laughs> but you're. Uh, thank well, you. I've I've done a lot of long distance sailing, and um, I, I I think it's fair to say that most of the people I have uh, associated with and and uh, commiserated with, they make a re a really sincere effort to um, outfit the boat with every possible um, piece of equipment and gear to deal with any and every contingency, but. You know, there aren't any guarantees, and um, there there are people who actually have performed appendectomies at sea who have who have actually no experience in doing anything more than putting a Band-Aid on their finger yeah. and pulled it off listening to the radio and listening to a doctor. And uh, But, um, uh, they, you know... We we pay for the Coast Guard. We pay we pay for all that. And They'll rescue anybody of any age for yeah. medical emergencies or otherwise, and that's a wonderful. And thing. it's a young child, yeah. and um, I, I I personally don't hold it against them, but I I'm biased. I'm a long distance sailor, and I've enjoyed a lot of what that's given me. So yeah, I did not really understand what Glenn Beck was upset about, honestly. And again, uh, um, Coast Guard uh, doing its job, and uh, what a wonderful thing. Uh, 
you know, potentially to grow up sailing around the world. I've met a couple of kids that have, have done that, and they're all, I thought, pretty cool. So I've had run-ins with the Coast Guard where I thought the taxpayers' dollars being spent in a much more frivolous manner, uh, I can well, tell yeah, you. We well, don't have to go into that. There's an hour but there, but the phone <laughs> is still ringing. So, good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hello, is somebody there? Yes, good morning. Good morning. Who are we speaking with? This is Jerry, the Down East Museum, and uh, Richard Comp and a group of people down here in Down East, Maine, are uh, working on a vocational school to help these veterans coming back to skill and not to kill. And uh, tying in with that, your Nova Scotia connection there, uh, uh, there's a building down there. It's called Head Harbor uh, Plant. used to be an old fish factory. And it's now a marina and a boat building place. And uh, the fellas put that up for sale. And uh, they were going to use that money to fund the project down in Cherryfield and Harrington area. Cherry, what's the Down East Museum? Well, it's a dream, actually. Ah, uh, we love dreams on Boat well, Talk. Uh, You're talking to us. clarify that. Yeah. We have all the stuff to fill the museum. We're just waiting to build the building. Huh. We have the Wyman paperwork dating back to 1869 to probably 1940s. And um, fair to say we're talking about, um, you know, the industry and livelihood of, da- of the Down East area there. That's right. Yeah, yeah. there's uh, the ledgers uh, read back to where there's the ship and the coal up uh, to run the sardine factories and, uh, and such, but... Uh, if anybody wants to get in contact with me, I'll give you my number. Sure, go ahead, Jerry. Okay, it's 207 598 5677. We were talking earlier with the fellow from the uh, DMR in Augusta about uh, harvesting eels and being a hunter gatherer, and, and uh, the story of Down East Maine, I guess, has always been resource uh, extraction, right? Uh, you know, what industry we have is. And had historically right. is yeah. isn't that pretty fair to say? As you know, uh, Harrington Cherryfield were uh, boat building uh, capitals. Actually, I was always fascinated to find out that that uh, those boats weren't built there because of the local timber. Yeah, that's right. That's correct. yeah. They were built with southern uh, oak, and well, uh, you know that was imported, but again by ship. Which makes yeah, it easy to get to down true, East Maine. Yeah. yeah, it makes it yeah, again a prime uh, place. Many pictures and ledgers of uh, the waterfronts in Cherryfield. And then uh, there was a quilt that was found in the attic of the Wyman house. And on the quilt, there was a patch sewn. And there was a, uh, a it said that uh, done by Nancy Tracy on board the bark Ticolet. On route to East India, 1876 to 1877. Grandmother to J. Hollis Wyman. Now, I looked up the bark Bob Hammond used to teach history down here in Harrington. And uh, the bark teakalit was built in Millbridge, Maine in 1876. Hmm. So, I mean, that just, uh, just a, you know. Jerry, I just—it just came to me in a in a flash here. You know what's wrong with our roads? Okay, uh, 
back in the day, we didn't need them like, like we do nowadays because the well, important stuff came and went by water. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And so why build a decent, why waste time building a decent road through a spruce swamp, uh, you know, when all the heavy stuff's going to come by water anyway, but that was back in the day. We ain't that smart now. Well, so that's a fact. We it's a smoother way, too. Along, way backwards, too. Yeah, and as Steve Earle says, been singing the 21st Century Blues, uh, playing on the Barefoot Blues Hour tomorrow. Uh, here we are living in the 21st century, not as cool as I hoped it would be. Uh, no man on the moon, nobody on Mars. Where the hell is my flying car? <laughs> That's good. Jerry, good luck with the Dream of the Down East Museum. Yeah, well, thank you, and I appreciate your WERU, and I'm a devout listener and supporter. We're yeah. trying to imagine you keeping that stuff dry today without a building. Yeah. Well, I keep, keep us informed. Yep. <laughs> I appreciate you all. Yeah. God bless. Thank you, Jerry. We are doing boat talk this morning, uh, with or without our friend Alan Sprague. Michael War come up from Stonington this morning, setting in. And, and again, we've talked about eels and uh, Wayne Hamilton's new Hamilton Learning Center and the uh, apprentice shops uh, selling off their waterfront down there in Rockland, looking for a creative uh, new buyer, possibly. Well, I got a, I got a plug here sure. for for um, for the internet, actually. So the, for the, for the listeners who haven't discovered it. There's a great uh, site started by Maynard Bray and some of his cohorts called Off Center Harbor. And um, you can you can just type this in and get samples. They, I was very fortunate enough to get a Christmas present of a lifetime subscription to this. But um, they, they are doing an absolutely fantastic job of uh, presenting Stories, videos, um, instructional videos, entertaining videos, everything from sail making to, in fact, my friend and neighbor Pete Buxton, they had him do uh, a show called The Deer Isle Spile, as opposed to The Deer Isle Smile, which yep. is a different subject. And how to go. fit uh, two pieces of wood next and, to each other. How, how, to, how to spile off a plank and yep. fit it, and they split it into three parts, and it's beautifully done, but they have... Um, videos on kayaking, on building kayaks, on sailing, on sail making. That Brooklyn, uh, they and they're doing a really beautiful job. I highly recommend to to armchair sailors, through to experienced boat builders and um, and offshore sailors. There's something there for everyone. And, off um, Center Harbor. Off Center Harbor. Yeah. Highly recommend it. And uh, there's a lot of entertainment there. Now, I have to make a computer uh, recommendation here, and if I could find it, you could find it. So okay. there. And what we're going to do is we're going to go to uh, Facebook, and we're going to ask them to uh, uh, let you into the face. The I'm sorry, the Boat Talk uh, page. Oh, I'm not a Facebook guy. Well, you know, uh, somebody tricked me into it, and it's not a bad thing. It's amusing. So um, uh, in some ways, yes. So anyway. Uh, my, my brother says, I like social networking. It means going with a friend out to a pub and having a beer. Go to uh, uh, Facebook and the Boat Talk page there and look for uh, uh, Boat Talk and John Lennon. And the Working Waterfront uh, has written a lovely little article about um, uh, the, the story your friend told. Yeah, on the they uh, were here the uh, uh, month when we interviewed Hank Halstead about sailing John Lennon t- on charter to Bermuda, getting in a big storm and getting John that all was jazzed funny. up. So John wrote the... Uh, Double fantasy record, and this was just uh, shortly before he was shot dead that same year. So, hell of a story. And uh, 
so this is on the Facebook page. I have not found a physical copy of it yet laying around. The Working Waterfront will be out any day now, and you can pick it up. And a uh, lovely little boat talk story in there. It reflects well on John Lennon. Alan Sprague and and Boat Talk in general, so, you know. And you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I thought it was pretty charming, and we have to thank him because uh, I called up Alan after uh, we got the word we were going to be interviewed there and, and have a story written about us. I said, Alan, I said, think about it now. He's going to describe us. Let that hang for a minute. <laughs> How would you like to describe yourself, Alan? Uh, you know. <laughs> An interesting project, you know, and he didn't over-describe us at all, but he said more or less kind things, so we're pretty happy. That's a good thing. <laughs> Get out of that one kind of cheap. So, Boat Talk, we are running into the corner this morning, and, uh, you know, we want to thank Michael for coming up. Uh, uh, I'm not sure where we're going uh, uh, next month, but among other things... Uh, uh, well, it's spring. We're supposed to be thinking about launching boats, aren't we? <laughs> yes. And uh, just talking to people, um, I asked people that were down to the boat show, uh, the main boat builder show in Portland, which uh, was another stunning success, uh, maintaining pretty much the same level of uh, interest. Uh, you know, um, in my little world, I've been out of touch now. How's things in general? And things in general are said to be somewhat booming. Yeah. You know, whether you're the Front Street Shipyard or... Uh, uh, the classic boat shop or uh, Pete Buxton, and, uh, you know, a lot of people are busy. Well, of course, uh, the big boys are really busy. Yes, they are cause, because there's still plenty of money in that. A lot car. of us little people are hurting, and I don't know where my money has gone, but uh, other people seem to be doing pretty damn well. And, uh, again, so uh, things are not going badly in the boat world down East Maine this season, uh, despite the... Otherwise, somewhat visible poverty of the of the springtime, let alone the, you know. So, well, one little plug from me for anybody who's repairing your boat out there: don't put in cheap materials. There Too much go. labor. Yeah, I'm paying the price for someone else doing that this winter, and it is painful. I'm doing that on a building repair. <laughs> so, all right, boat talk uh, once again. We probably fooled them. And, uh, thanks, Mike, for coming around. Thanks, Mike, for asking me anytime. Uh, My pleasure. Rich Hill Singer coming up on the wing.